All right, let's turn to Revelation 19. Another dramatic story from the Revelation. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he had judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, We're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, Gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophets, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ.
Apparently, um, Harvey Moger, older member of our congregation, won a bet at the beginning of the service, his wife, that I was going to continue preaching on Revelation through Advent. As soon as I started reading the text, I heard him say, I told you. <laughs> the journey of the word. I don't know if you caught in the call to worship, the words from John chapter one, the, the gospel according to John, that in the beginning was the word. David mentioned the logos, that's the Greek word. It's a much more expansive word than the way we often mean it. The beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and then we move to John 1.14 and the word became flesh, which is what we celebrate with our advent wreaths and candles and calendars. And in Revelation chapter 19, verse 13, Jesus is again described as the word as the second advent commences his return. Advent is both about his enfleshing and incarnation and is a reminder to us, a strong reminder that he will come again. Revelation 19 answers a question that the first century Christians were asking and that you ask and that I ask perhaps especially around our family tables or when our work seems more challenging or as we begin to feel the effects more directly of the fallen world, the question is, is it worth it to follow the lamb wherever he goes? Throughout the book, the, those sealed with the mark of Jesus are called those who followed the lamb wherever he goes, which for a first century Christian often meant to martyrdom. For us, it will probably not equal that, and yet it's challenging, isn't it? To forgive, to be generous, to continue to choose love and even to define love in very broken relationships and yet still, with wisdom, seek reconciliation and peace. It's challenging, isn't it? Many of you are in businesses that don't honor the truth. I don't mean that they lie, but you know what I mean. It's not expected that you be direct and honest and clear and kind. And in the back of our minds, we wonder in those moments, in between the expectation and the Christian action, we wonder, is it worth it to follow the Lamb wherever He goes? Sometimes I hear Christians, well-meaning, say something to someone who's grieving along the lines of, you know, this is just a foretaste, right, for heaven? Uh, no, no, it's not. This life matters a very great deal. And how we live it matters a very great deal. I believe that the revelation is in the scriptures not only because John saw the revelation and penned it to the churches and then by extension to us, but also to give us an understanding of what our lives look like from the king's perspective. We are to be encouraged that our lives as followers of Christ look far more dynamic than they feel. And as we allow the revelation to wash over us, as we allow ourselves to be gripped by it, we're encouraged that it is indeed worth it to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. The way we celebrate Advent in the 21st century is with hope, peace, joy, and love. Those are the candles. And 
perhaps you have a calendar at home and this is a time that, that conversations can perhaps ramp up, it would be awesome if, if they were like that all the time, right, amongst our family. But in my family, we do a little bit better job in Advent talking about the grace of Jesus and his incarnation. But do you know what the Advent candles used to be about? In medieval times, these four candles, go ahead and look at them, symbolized death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And perhaps we're like, whoa, that's not festive. And yet, in most centuries, throughout human history, light and heat and knowledge of where our next meal is going to come from and relative security that we're not going to be executed for our faith was not something that people took for granted. And so they understood perhaps far quicker and perhaps far more profoundly than we do the need for God to judge evil, to actually extricate and untangle the forces of evil from his good creation as he returns. I hope that you have decorations and calendars. I, I, I'm coming, coming around on Christmas. Some of you have noticed it's not, it, it, as a, when I was growing up, it was not always my favorite season. Always is the wrong word. It was not ever my favorite season or holiday. And I'm coming around to it. And one of the things that I love are the lights because there's so much imagery throughout scripture about Jesus as the light. John 1 and his description of himself. And so I hope that you celebrate through decoration around your house and those decorations remind you both of the hope, peace, joy, and love that are found in following the lamb wherever he goes, but also the fact that he will judge. Because it is necessary. Both the reality of and the effects of sin and death are everywhere. And we're desperately longing for the second advent when those things will be pulled out of the world. Revelation 19 is not about when and it's not about exactly how. Did you catch that this is Armageddon? Like one of the most famous words in the Revelation, the most specific description we get of it, and it's not even named. If you hashtag Revelation 19, you're not going to come up with Armageddon even though that's what it is. Or maybe you would, I don't know. But... I don't understand hashtags very well. <laughs> because what's more important to note, what the text is about, is Jesus' pursuit of his people and his world, and Jesus' judgment of sin and of death and the forces of darkness. The journey of the word is is both to wed and to make war. On Thursday night, I changed my outline, and I'm the kind of boss that doesn't call my people and say, on Thursday night, I changed everything. Tech and print need to, you folders need to come in. So in your bulletin, it's not listed. But this chapter is about the beginning of the wedding feast. Of the, it doesn't mean I'm a good boss. I just don't do that. Let's be clear. I do a lot of other things that stress them out, and I don't even realize it until later. But that thing I don't do. One of our volunteers on Wednesday morning is laughing because she knows that sometimes, yeah, anyway. <laughs> the journey of the word, the logos, is in marriage to his people. This is challenging to us because we, we want our religion to be about the spiritual things that we do. We want our religion to be about intellectual assent. And yet throughout the scriptures, intimate language is utilized. 
by God to describe his relationship with his people. It is an integrated and affectionate and rational and intellectual and involves spiritual practices, but is not limited to those things. And this chapter is about the beginning of the marriage. Evil has been extricated and untangled enough for it to begin. The great prostitute, which is the great city, throughout the book of Revelation, that combined with the beast to lead people away from following Christ has been judged. She was lamented first because that is how God does things and leads us to do things. And now, evil is being judged. Why does he wait? Because Revelation 19 has not been fully accomplished yet. Evil has not been extricated from our world. He waits for his purposes to be fully accomplished. In chapter 19, verse 8, it says, For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. In Colossians 1.27 and Philippians 3.20, Paul describes completing what is lacking in Christ's work. And I don't know how theologically you think about things, but Christ's work is fully complete with respect to the atonement, with respect to salvation. When you and I practice love because of his great love for us, we are not earning our salvation. There is no salvation to be earned by us, only by him. And yet, the work of the kingdom in a broken world is not yet complete. And that challenges us. That leads us to sing songs of expectation like the ones we've already sung and the ones we're going to sing. That leads us, like psalmists, to say, how long, O Lord? But it also tells us that our work here matters. Sometimes when Christians interact with the Revelation and with uh, Christian teachings on eschatology, they're, they're led to think, wrongly in my estimation, that the only work that matters is evangelism. The only work that really matters is saving people to heaven, which, by the way, not your job, though you get to participate with it. It's God's job. He pursues people, though we get to participate alongside him. What the revelation and especially the rest of, not especially, what the revelation and the rest of Scripture teach are that all of your work as a follower of Christ matters a very great deal from the king's perspective. When you forgive, when you're generous, when you act Christianly in your place of business and when you do not, but then apologize and own it, when you go back to your children and converse with them about loving them better, repenting to them, those moments are actually adorning the king. His garments reflect our moments of action in light of his love in this world that is still bent. When is the bride fully prepared? I do not know. And Revelation 19 is not concerned with telling us when or exactly how. It is telling us about the wedding feast of the Lamb and about the war of Jesus Christ against the forces of darkness. How is he described? Faithful. We don't see a lot of faithfulness in our world. Not like this. He's described as true. We don't see a lot of pure, good truth. His eyes are purifying judgment, fire. Because he sees the world both as it actually is and as it could be, we do not. The clothes and the diadems reflect the completed work 
of the church, of the followers of Christ. Throughout the book, whenever um, individuals appear, we're often given numbers to their horns or their heads for the beasts, to the uh, outfits that they're wearing. And here there are not numbers because Jesus' work is so transcendently powerful, so much more powerful than the work of the beast. That is why they are not numbered. And then there are these birds. Did that throw you off a little bit? One of the times I was reading this, I'm like, where, what, what is, why do we need carrion in Revelation 19? For those of you that have some friends that will ask you later about church, perhaps this would be the, the thing to talk with them about. You know, for the first Sunday of Advent, there was more carrion than I expected. <laughs> would that work as a good line for the, I don't know. Well, the birds actually have a, a number, a number of, um, they're important for a number of reasons. As is often the case with the Revelation, the things that confuse us, if we find an anecdote in the Old Testament, it will not only tell us more about that, but affirm the way the Bible speaks about these things. Birds actually have four points, and by the way, these are noble birds. They don't look like turkey vultures in the Middle East. Um, one, this is a double fulfillment of Ezekiel thirty-nine seventeen that describes what it will look like when the nations are judged. I'm sorry, not the nations, evil. The, the, the metaphor in Revelation 20 and in Ezekiel 39 is Gog and Magog. Those are fictional nations that are to be judged. Two, this is a grim contrast to the feast of the Lamb. The followers of Christ are invited to a feast. We get a foretaste of that in communion. The birds feeding upon the kings of the earth are a grim sad, violent parody of that, as is much of Revelation, as is much of our teachings on the darker things of Scripture. What is hell? It is a parody of heaven. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but it means what it is is contrasted with heaven in the same way the birds help us see the contrast to the feast of the lamb it reflects some of Jesus's teachings in Matthew chapter 24 28 and most importantly for the revelation this is the third woe not like woe but like woe bad you know what I'm saying right w-o-e throughout the book there are all these numbers and if any of you are keeping track of them I'm very impressed the only way I can do it is with lots of notebooks too many notebooks both online and physical but Earlier in the book, it'll say the first woe has passed. And then the second woe has passed. And if you're paying attention, maybe with a big whiteboard, I love to use whiteboards to keep things like this straight, you might notice that the third woe has not passed until now. So the birds might feel like an aside, but they're actually very important. The journey of the word to wed and to make war is against the ten horns from earlier, from chapter 17, verses 12 through 14, and that feels like an aside to you for me to bring up horns, but John is not here talking about all the human armies, though they might be included. John is talking about what Paul calls the principalities and powers of this world, meaning the forces of evil that we cannot see and understand, but that God sees and fully understands. That doesn't mean that humans that receive the mark of the beast don't receive punishment for that. But this battle, Armageddon, not described nearly as 
extensively as I would prefer because it's more about drawing his people to the wedding feast and it's more about the forces of darkness that we cannot see. This war is Jesus eliminating and, and more, import, or more specifically extricating and untangling the world from the forces of darkness that convince men not only to not worship God but to harm one another. The false prophet, which is the second beast, and the beast are thrown into the pit. Sometimes it can be confusing. You're like, wait a minute, what happened to the second beast? And who's this false prophet? It's actually because they're used interchangeably. This is the fulfillment of Psalm 2, when it says that Jesus will judge with a rod of iron, rule, excuse me, with a rod of iron. Now we see an image of it in Revelation chapter 19. And what this calls us to is worship. And we talk about this a lot because the Revelation is probably most clearly understood as a book of worship. The book it is most like in the rest of the scriptures is actually the Psalms. These images are to remind us to worship God and worship Him only, which means to enjoy the things of the world but not ask them to speak peace and truth to our hearts for they cannot. This is why John starts to worship the angel. Not only because, first of all, that happened. I think John wrote it down because it happened. But also as a gentle reminder to us how difficult it is to worship God and not worship the things of this world. Then I fell down at his feet in verse 10 to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Which is the angel saying, dude, Right? No? Okay. John ends his first letter to the churches in, in 1 John by saying, children, keep yourselves from idols. And here in the Revelation, despite the transcendent visions and the violence and the visions of heaven that were so glorious, there's a moment where John is letting us know that he too struggles to worship God and him only with his activity. And we do also. We would worship so many other things than God. We would ask the, uh, so many other things to speak peace to our heart, whether it's the happiness of our children or financial security or some kind of life that, that we think would give us rest. And the problem with all of those things is they're good, but they're not God. And these first century Christians went to church knowing that they might be arrested as they left or directly persecuted by another religious body. We do not have that fear. And the revelation is reminding us not only that God alone is worthy of worship, idols must be both discarded and replaced with something else, which is worship of the Father. The revelation reminds us that we worship God because he is true and faithful when nothing else is. The revelation reminds us that there is hope in trusting Christ. And there is no other place to find hope. The worship of these people is described as a combination of waves and thunder. 
when you come here and, and worship, I wonder if you like the sound of your own voice and maybe you sing a little lower because you don't or you sing a little higher because you're comfortable with it. That would put you in the minority in my experience. And the revelation describes their worship, which I believe is our worship, as a combination of waves and thunder. Have you been to the beach in a while? Been to a beach that's not protected by an inlet and perhaps after a storm? I find it most disorienting when it's after a storm, but it's a pretty day. And you come down and the waves are crashing far more loudly than they had in the past. This is a combination of waves plus thunder. It does not seem to us like our worship matters. And yet from the king's perspective, it is not only good for our hearts, but it is a pushback on the evil in the world until Jesus returns in the second advent to fully extricate evil from the world. The journey is to wed his people, to make war, and that calls us to worship and to follow. Advent reminds us of what we are grateful for in the past, that Jesus came and took on flesh, that we might be reunited to the Father. Advent reminds us of the future, of the very, very good news that Jesus will return. He will pull out all of the strands of evil in the world, judge them fully in ways that we will not understand purely until it happens, and perhaps not even then until after but also for the present, that today we are indeed being formed into people who love God and others. Advent reminds us to be grateful for these things. Perhaps more so at your place of business or in extended family gatherings or when you cannot sleep or when you wake up early with anxious thoughts either about your past or your present or your future. In some measure, you're wondering, is it worth it to follow the Lamb wherever He goes? And Revelation 19 answers that question very profoundly. There is but one Lamb. There is but one life of life available to us. There is but one real hope available to us. And that is in following the lamb, wherever he goes. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, you describe your faithful as those who received your love and received your work on their behalf and then responded in love. Holy Spirit, would you strengthen us as we sing about your love? Would you strengthen our minds to consider our past, which includes your work, and our present, which troubles us, and our future, which gives us fear and anxiety? Holy Spirit, come alongside us. Let us be gripped by these images of you making war against evil, you pursuing your bride and drawing her to yourself, comforting and assuring us of your love. As we sing and as we pray and as we receive your supper, Lord, would you give us confidence that we are yours and you are ours forever. Amen.